We're continuing this morning in our series on 1 Peter. So our text is the New Testament lesson from 1 Peter chapter 3. So having exhorted from the middle of chapter 2 to the middle of chapter 3, having exhorted this community of exiles in the various ways that it is called to imitate Christ in the hostile environment it finds itself in, Peter moves today to further steal the community for suffering, for resistance from the world. And in so doing, he exhorts them in what has become something of a a classic text um, for Christian apologetics, a, a defense of the Christian faith. He exhorts them on how to do that. So we'll look at the text under two headings. They're there. In the bulletin, fear and revere, fear and revere. So this is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. First, then fear. Verse 13, here's a question. Who is going to harm you if you are eager for good? Now, in one sense, the answer to this is, Lots of people, right? Lots of, lots of people. Lots of people will harm those who are eager for good. One commentator said, the spectacle of moral beauty does not disarm all the wicked. They're often irritated by the radiance of a virtue that condemns them. Right? Cultures they get to a place where they literally are calling evil good and good evil. They're calling the beautiful ugly and the ugly beautiful. And ours is well on the road to that Orwellian darkness. And the culture that these scattered Asian Christians live in is also slowly descending into that irrational abyss. Right? There are a lot of commonalities, it's been pointed out by a lot of writers in the last decade or so, between the church in the second century and the church in the 21st century. And this is one of them. Both live in a time when the cultures are unraveling. And the Christian vision of things becomes increasingly suspect and marginalized. Now, Peter still holds out some hope, though. It's really more, it's like more theoretical than actual, but he holds out some hope that goodness maybe, goodness maybe can preserve some peace. Right? We all want to think that. If we do good, then nobody's going to really harm us. But the letter as a whole makes it clear that the suffering of the church can be expected to increase. But here, for a brief moment, Peter holds out this hope that maybe goodness can forestall the suffering. Right? This always tends to be the path of the community of the believers in a culture that's unraveling. There's a point where you think, well, if we just show goodness and virtue, the culture will understand. It'll have its due effect. And Peter holds out just a little bit of hope, not too much, just a little, that maybe that'll be the case. 
And so he continues in the text. He says, but even if, and this is what he thinks is really going to happen, even if you should suffer for what is right, or as he puts it a little further down in verse 17, it, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And so now, he's right at the central theme of the letter. Suffering for righteousness. Suffering for doing what's right. Or as he might put it in another context, suffering unto glory. Even if you should suffer for doing right, he says, you are blessed. Now here Peter makes a very crucial Christian connection. And it's this. And we're all going to say, oh yes, I agree with that. But we disagree with it deep in our bones, in our hearts. It's, it's, it's counter to our instincts, right? As natural people. Here's the connection. Suffering and blessedness are not opposites. Indeed, suffering for what is right receives the benediction of Christ himself. This is a unique, transformative view of suffering in the world. And Peter, again, he's drawing, where does Peter get this from? Well, he's been drawing deeply from Jesus' own ethical teaching, from Jesus' own example, public example, as one who suffered as a righteous sufferer. Right? Remember, this is a teaching that Peter, like all of us, initially resisted. The Son of Man must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the scribes and the elders and be crucified. And Peter says, no way. Right? And the Lord's response is, get behind me, Satan. Right? He resisted this teaching, and now Peter has come in his epistle to champion this way of the cross. So if we ask ourselves the question, where did Peter learn that you are blessed if you suffer for what is right? He learned it from the innocent, righteous, crucified one who said this, and we heard this in the gospel lesson. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you or when they persecute you or when they falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What are you supposed to do when that happens? What are you supposed to do when that happens to the church? When the church is persecuted for righteousness and insulted and people slander it and malign it. Here's what Jesus says to do. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Now, that's not our natural reaction, is it? Rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven. You know why? That's the same thing Jesus said that they did to the prophets. In other words, this has been going on for 3,000 years. 
It seems new and scary to us in the American situation because we're used to a unique situation where Christianity has a kind of, had, had a kind of a predominance, right? A kind of hegemony in the culture. But this is standard Christian disposition that Peter is talking about here. If we're descending into some sort of irrational, mad cultural darkness in America, it's a mad, irrational cultural darkness that the Christians that Peter wrote to knew about firsthand. So the example of Jesus is got to be at the center of any kind of reflection and response to this. And his example is radical and cutting and deep. And it subverts the situation of suffering and turns it into the place, the site of blessedness. He subverts the situation of suffering. He turns it into the site of blessedness. We are not wired like this. We are wired to fight fire with fire. And no disposition could be further from the Sermon on the Mount, the heart of Jesus' ethical disposition teaching, than that. So now, we can re-listen to the opening question of the text. Who is going to harm you? The word for harm there means do evil. Who is going to do evil to you? Right? If you are eager to do good. Well, the answer now is, No one. No one. Because no permanent harm can come to the children of God. Not a hair on your head can be touched without our Father's permission. Nothing. Nothing, Paul says. You know that famous passage in Romans chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Right? No political, cultural shifts and turns. Neither death, nor life, nor anything else in all creation can sever this bond. And it's important to remember this. You know, there's what I call the most overlooked verse in Romans chapter 8. That grand passage of triumphant, exultant victory in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in all of these things. We are more than conquerors. And right in the middle of that, Paul says this. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. Did you remember that that's in the middle of Romans chapter 8? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. More than conquerors, we triumph over all because for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are being regarded as sheep led to the slaughter. That's the context of Christian victory and triumph. That is how we are more than conquerors. And Peter, as a pastor, is preparing his people to think That way. Now his hearers, nor we, are being slaughtered. True. But Paul's probably being hypothetical there, right? Not hypothetical, but hyperbolic. I mean, Christians were not all being slaughtered and 
50-something A.D. when Paul wrote the book of Romans. But they were being harassed. Some were being killed. Some were being imprisoned. These Christians face serious opposition. And the point here is this. You face serious opposition, so what do you do? You say this. If we suffer for righteousness, that is a blessed estate. Now that takes us into the paradox of the cross. right? And that is the scandal which shapes the very center of Christian existence. Right? We've been talking about this here for four or five weeks now. That the shape of the cross is the shape of the Christian life. And this is why you can find someone who's been formed by the cross. Like the Apostle Paul. And he says this. For Christ's sake, he says, I delight in weaknesses and in insults. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships, he says. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. Look, this is either the paradox of the cross or this is some sort of psychological madness. Right, you run this by a modern psychologist and they're going to say, this is a disordered person. Right, normal, healthy, well-adjusted people do not delight in being insulted. That's because they don't go the way of the cross. They don't delight in weakness. Paul goes on to say, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So after the pattern of our Lord, we win by losing, right? How are we more than conquerors in Romans 8? By being slaughtered all day long. And the conclusion of this bit of instruction from Peter is very bracing, but it's also heartening. It's encouraging. You can see it at the end of verse 14. Here's what follows from this. Do not fear their threats. There's dark clouds on the horizon. We all know them. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Right? Government overreach, lockdown, whatever they're going to do. Do not be frightened. It's a citation from the Old Testament lesson from Isaiah 8. That's what Peter's quoting here. That's why that was the Old Testament lesson. Now listen to Isaiah 8. Because this is what Peter's drawing on. Here's what Isaiah says. You heard it in the Old Testament lesson. Do not call conspiracy everything that this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. Do not dread it. In other words, don't get yourself whipped up into a political frenzy. Here's the next verse in Isaiah, and this Peter cites even more directly. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. And these Christians to whom Isaiah writes, these covenant people of God to whom he writes in the 8th century B.C., right? they had real cause to, to fear a genuine political conspiracy. Because there was a conspiracy between Ahaz, the king in the north, and the Assyrian empire to crush and destroy and to wipe Judah off the map. 
And all of southern Israel was terrified. Their hearts were trembling like leaves, the text says. Right? This was an open political movement to utterly crush and destroy Judah. And Isaiah comes along and says, don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. But, it, but it is a real conspiracy, Isaiah. Here's the YouTube clip. I'm not making this stuff up. Yeah, I know. Isaiah knows. He knows. There's an empire that wants to swallow you up. And even the northern kingdom's participating with the empire. And you're politically as vulnerable as you can be. Do not call conspiracy everything that everybody goes around calling conspiracy. You know why? Because the Lord God Almighty is scarier than that. He's the one you are to fear. He's the one you are to dread. We don't fear the opponents of the church, nor do we fear the things they fear. We're called in this text to question, to interrogate, to examine our own fears. We all need to do this, right? Certainly the pandemic has caused us to do that. Whether it's our fear of death or our fear of exposure or our fear of this or our fear of that. Some fears are natural. They're biological. They may even be good. But others, even if they're natural, like the fear of suffering, like conspiratorially induced fear of suffering, those fears are going to have to be overcome. In one sense, we renounce conspiracy theories because in a deeper sense, we affirm them. Sure, there's a conspiracy of all the demonic hosts of heaven and all the powers that be against Christ and his church. They conspire together, Psalm 2 says, against the Lord and against his anointed. So I'm, I'm, you know, on, that, on that point, right, you can say I'm singularly unimpressed with conspiracy theories because I believe in a much more deeper, profound conspiracy against the church. Right, so if just suffering, if, if actual suffering comes on you, and it is blessedness for it to do so, then what has to happen to us is the perfect love of God has to drive out and cast out fear. It doesn't mean we don't do the political analysis. It doesn't mean that what people are saying about conspiracy is necessarily wrong. It wasn't wrong in the 8th century B.C., But notice, there are two rapid-fire commands here. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And again, Peter, inciting the prophet Isaiah, he's also drawing from Jesus. He's drawing from his master who said this. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. Well, that certainly puts things in perspective. Well, they're doing this to us and that to us and this to us and they want to do this and they want to do that and then if they do that, then this will happen and then that will happen. And then Jesus comes along and says, oh, what, what, so what's the worst outcome? They killed the body? Well, don't, don't, don't be too worried about that. I mean, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. They can't touch the inner mystery of your life. They can't even touch the inner mystery of the church's life. How is the church depicted throughout the whole book of Revelation? 
She's depicted as trampled in her outward estate and victorious in heaven at the same time. As I said before, the civil magistrates cannot even interrupt the churches assembling together because the churches assembled together in the heavenly Zion in the perpetual uninterrupted assembly, Hebrews chapter 12, with all the angels and all the saints and all the righteous dead, with Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And that assembly cannot be suspended and was not suspended. In fact, this assembly is a downward reflection a pale earthly imitation, a kind of participation in that assembly from Hebrews 12. They can't even touch the assembly of the church. Rather, Jesus says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You want something something to be afraid of? Here you go. This is what I'm calling the exchange of fears. Isaiah said, you know, don't fear what they fear, but rather, here's the exchange. The Lord God Almighty is the one you are to fear, for he is the one you are to dread. And Jesus echoes that by saying, don't fear those who can kill the body. Rather, here's the exchange. Instead of fearing A... Rather fear be, rather fear the, fear the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. Now that is not very touchy-feely of Jesus. It's an astonishing bit of teaching to fearful people. But there's a profound point here, as there always is with our Lord, and it's challenging right down to the depth of our souls. Our fears often arise... Because there is little or no fear, little holy dread, or trembling before God himself. I mean, yes, we will check the box that we fear God. But we don't actually tremble. We're not actually undone. You will not get this counsel for overcoming your fears anywhere else, beloved. You will not get it anywhere else. Here's the counsel. Fears need to be replaced with a greater liberating fear. Right? Fears need to be replaced with a greater liberating fear. Fear the Lord God Almighty. And the fear of the Lord God Almighty will not sit well. It will not sit comfortably. It will not cohabit with other fears. Right? The fear of God, the fear of the Lord, real and clean and living and enduring, consoling fear. Comforting fear drives out the fear of man. And here, Peter says, it drives out the fear of those who inflict suffering on the church. Right? That's his context. It's much the same thing that happens in Isaiah 40, which I spoke of a few weeks ago, where Isaiah sees the transcendent Lord and then the nations vanish into a kind of nothingness. Until that happens... The frame of things is not right for us. So this exchange of fears, the church's enemies for the Lord God Almighty, right? We do not fear what is to come. We do not fear the enemies. That doesn't mean we don't soberly watch or examine. I'm not at all saying that. We just don't fear. 
But we fear instead the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of hosts. And that explains the difference in this Peter, right? This was a Christ-denying Peter cowering in the courtyard the night that Jesus was arrested. And then you get this bold, public, Christ-proclaiming Peter in Acts chapter 5 before the Sanhedrin. A, a, A series of exchanges has happened. He's exchanged the fear of man for the fear of the Lord God. And he had come then to affirm what the psalmist affirms in Psalm 56, 4, which says, In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? There's nothing mere mortals can do to you that is of any permanent harm to the heavenly eschatological community of the people of God. That's fear. The second point is revere. Now, listen, it's important to be alert here because something wondrous happens. Peter has just cited Isaiah 8. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And we saw that this means in the very next verse that we are to fear or to dread the Lord God Almighty. So, Listen now, Peter cites Isaiah at the end of verse 15. The end of verse 15, but he really doesn't stop citing him. He continues. And then he modifies Isaiah's thought. And he says this, Do not be frightened, but rather in your hearts revere or fear Christ as Lord. Do you see what has happened here? Jesus Christ is now identified as. He is standing in for what Isaiah called the Lord God Almighty. Right? In Isaiah chapter 8. Instead of Lord God Almighty, Peter lifts the quote and replaces it with Christ the Lord. It's a remarkable text because it establishes that even at this early date, when 1 Peter was written in the 60s, In the A.D. 60s, the church already identified Jesus as Yahweh incarnate, as the Lord God Almighty, as divine, as equal with the God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel is to be feared. Christ the Lord is to be revered. Revered in our hearts, Peter says. Reverenced in our hearts which is in the entirety of our souls, our inner being, our mind, our will, our affections, our intellect. To revere Christ, then, is to sanctify him, he says, to set him apart as holy in your interior person. To reverence Christ as one reverences the Lord God Almighty. This is what scholars call a high Christology a high view of Jesus Christ, even there early, early, early in the church's existence. We are to reverence Christ as Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of the covenant. So it turns out then, this is the exchange of fears that the text is calling for. Do not fear your enemies, but reverence Christ In your hearts. Interior reverence for the Lord Jesus Christ is the key 
to conquering your fears. It's the key to inner peace in these turbulent and sometimes confusing times. Another way to say what I said earlier is to put it this way. One cannot conquer their fears directly. Rarely, anyway. But we do it by cultivating this reverence, this Christ-centered, Christ-saturated reverence, by revering Christ as Lord. This wonderful fear and reverence displaces all other fears. Right? And to the extent that we have these other fears, it's kind of an indicator for us to say, okay, you know, I'm not reverencing Christ as Lord the way I should. He is not consecrated in my heart the way he should be. Because when that happens, these other fears will be dispersed. And this fearing of Christ is the prerequisite for what we call apologetics. Peter concludes by saying this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have in you. Now this is a a kind of a classic, famous text uh, the word for answer in Greek is apologia. It's the, it's the word we get apology from. It doesn't mean to apologize or to be apologetic. It means to give a defense, right? to give a defense. It would often be used in a formal setting, like having to answer a charge in a court, say. Although that's not the way Peter's using it here. He's using it more informally. So when we say, when we say something like apologetics... We mean the reasoned defense of the faith. It's interesting how Peter goes from fearing Christ to this. But please get this. He's not thinking of some high-powered defense of Christianity reserved only for the elite or for intellectuals. He's thinking of something all believers can do. He's speaking to every single person in here. And what equips one for this task is not 10 years of academic reading. It's reverencing Christ as Lord in your hearts. You want to be an effective apologist for the gospel? Reverence Christ as Lord in your heart. That's the prereq for being an effective defender of the faith, for being able to give an answer. Now, notice this as well in the text. These are answers given to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope within you. At the risk of sounding, you know, pedantic, answers are given to questions. The text assumes questions are being asked. And you then respond with an answer. The apologist here, the defender, is not pictured as aggressively seeking to initiate conversations or as tracking people down. The text says this, if someone asks you, if someone asks you, be ready to give them an answer. Don't throw pearls before swine. You know, don't, don't give answers to people who aren't asking any serious questions. We all make this mistake, I think, because we want so badly to share the gospel sometimes. Trust the Spirit to provoke questions, even 
from the hostile. And the audience here is assumed to be hostile. But giving answers to questions that have not been asked is a futile endeavor. And Christians do too much of it. And notice this as well. There's a lot that we can glean from these couple of lines in Peter here talking to us about defending the faith. The questioning in view here is focused. We are, we are being asked to give a reason, Peter says, for the hope that is in us. Now listen. I want to change the way your ear hears something. Apologetics? We hear the word apologetics. What do we think? Defense of the faith. Apologetics? Defense of the faith. I mean, I just said it myself three or four minutes ago. Apologetics is the defense of the faith. You know what it should kind of be probably first? The defense of the hope. Because you're to give a reason for the hope that's within you. What's being defended is first and foremost the Christian hope. Now, what difference does this make? I think it makes quite a bit of difference, actually. We live in a culture, as did Peter's Christians... We live in a culture that has largely, maybe not entirely, but largely shown no interest in asking us questions. Have you noticed that? (laughs) And it's not necessarily just a lack of intellectual curiosity. We we live in a culture where the the very plausibility of the kinds of questions that Christianity answers has collapsed. We're not living in a world where people are coming up to you and saying, Speak to me about the existence of God or the, or the evidence for the resurrection. Right? We live in a culture which shows virtually no interest in asking us questions. There are many, many reasons for this. But one that we might reflect on from this text is this. If it's a reason for the hope that's in us, is that hope within us bright? Or is it dim? I mean, and remember this. Hope for Peter, as in the New Testament, is not a general optimism or a worldly hopefulness. Well, you seem to be a hopeful person. Why don't you tell me about your faith? That's not what Peter's envisioning here. Right? For Peter, hope is a heavenly, future, eschatological thing. Is that hope visible in us? I mean, the hope that's in view here is the hope of the gospel. It's the hope of the resurrection. It's the hope of what Peter called the heavenly inheritance. It's the hope of what Colossians 1 says, the gospel speaks of this hope which is laid up for you in heaven. It's the hope of the appearing of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely, Peter says, on the grace to be brought to you at the apocalypse or the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the hope of the resurrection and the transfiguration of the cosmos. It's the hope of the resurrection of the dead and the eradication of disease and the transfiguration of all things in the light and glory of God. Does that hope, is that hope in us? Does anyone see that? Because the early church was shaped and molded and formed by the imminent expectation of the Lord's return. So imminent that modern scholars think all the early Christians got it wrong. They thought Jesus was about to return again. I mean, even a casual reading of the New Testament breathes this air of expectancy. It's electric. 
It's an air of radical, heavenly orientation, of pulsating hope in this glory which is about to break in, of the end of all things being at hand. And all of this has drained itself out of the modern church. And so it's no wonder that nobody asks us about the hope that we have. This is not about having a certain kind of disposition toward the future. We ourselves have forgotten this hope, or we've neutered it. Even apologetics then starts, like everything else in the Christian life, you know where it starts? It starts from the future and works back. It starts from glory and works into the present. It starts from heaven and works down to earth. They ask about the Christian hope because they've seen it in you, Peter says. Just go back. I challenge you this week. Go back to the opening cadences of 1 Peter and look for the word hope and look for the word glory. Or you can also look for the word revelation, which is apocalypse in Greek. And you'll see just how often he is focusing the church this way. They ask about that. That's what they're asking about. I mean, it's not that interesting a question, right, to say, well, you seem more have to have a little more hope than I do, maybe a little better mental health than I do. Um, what, can you tell me? Can you help me out with that? What's your ideology? That's not what Peter's talking about. Because, you know, that's not the human predicament. Like, that's not the problem we're in. Here's the problem we're in. Everybody's dying, and we want the resurrection of the dead. Does anybody have any hope for that? Because that's a hope people might ask about. Right? Instead, Christianity is seen as either the adoption of a different set of moral views or a different set of political views or a different set of moral and political views and a different set of this and a different set of that. And it just becomes my ideology is better than your ideology. It does more earthly good. So we are to give a reason for this hope. The hope of the resurrection of the dead, right? Paul says this in the book of Acts when he's on trial. He says, I am on trial here. I think it's Felix or Agrippa he's talking to. He says, I am on trial here for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Give a reason for that. And these reasons flow out of our reverence for Christ as Lord, for he in his risen glory is our hope. You see how these things... conspire together? Christ in you is the hope already tasted of this glory which is to come. That's the hope people are supposed to ask us about. So when you think apologetics, think defense of the hope. Defense of the hope. And remember, we are not talking here about coffee house conversations with friends. We are talking about defending the faith Peter is, under some real duress. And yet, notice this in the text. The call is to do so with gentleness and respect. And here we are back to the way of the cross again. These are enemies. These these are people who want to invade your church, burn it down, imprison you, take your property, slander you, and disrupt your whole Christian life, right? These These are what the Christians are facing to whom Peter writes. And he says, when they ask about your hope, make sure you do it with gentleness and respect. 
We, we can't even behave this way just in normal speech, much less the speech given back to people who are harming us. There's a spirit, again, that calls us into this deep mystery of Christ's cross, which says, in my speech, I'm going to refuse to coerce or to manipulate or to force or to demand my rights in the face of provocation. This is a call to meek and sanctified speech. We, who are to be ready, are to be humble and gentle and respectful. Keeping, Peter says, a clear conscience. Right? Because we can defile our own conscience in the way we defend the faith. Who among us hasn't done that? Right? We can defile our own conscience in the way we defend the things that are precious to us. And so we do this, Peter says, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. Remember, so who's in view? Who are we talking to with gentleness and respect? People who deserve gentleness and respect? No. People who speak maliciously against you. And maliciously against your good behavior. Maliciously against the things you love. To those people, speak with gentleness and respect so that, Peter goes on to say, they may be ashamed of their slander. We will, like our Lord, have to wait for this. We will have to wait for the truth to win out. Remember, Peter has set Jesus, his way of suffering, as the footsteps for us to walk in, as the pattern, as the sketch. He was threatened, Peter tells us, and he did not threaten. He was reviled, he did not revile in return. What did he do? You know, it's remarkable to me that that question does not get asked enough. What did Jesus do in response when he suffered unjustly from the powers that be? Peter tells us. It's right there at the heart of this passage. It's in Peter, 2 Peter 2. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Vindication comes with resurrection. So, let me conclude. I want to notice, point out something obvious. Peter gives here no instructions on how to study or read or beef up your ability in apologetics. None. His passion is for the character and the heart of the apologist. Right? Our character. Because if the world's malice forces us to lose gentleness and respect, not only will our conscience be defiled, our witness will be destroyed. Right? If the world's malice forces us to lose gentleness, our witness will be destroyed. So what's required? Well... An exchange of fears is required. A casting out of the fear of persecution or the fear of opposition. And an embrace of reverence for Christ as Lord. This creates real boldness. Holy boldness. We do not fear men. We do not fear their threats. We might not all agree on exactly how to respond to them all, but we should all agree on this. We are not to fear them. 
We are not to fear them. And this reverence of this Christ also should produce gentleness and respect. A kind of humility which imitates our Lord's own non-retaliatory, cheek-turning, forgiving, loving witness toward his enemies in the middle of his passion. Boldness and gentleness then go together, don't they? Boldness and gentleness. These are the fruits of this great exchange of fears. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. For this reverence of Christ as Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it is the beginning, it is the root of a gentle, fruitful defense of the hope that is within you. Amen.